Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. So welcome to the podcast, um, and I would like to welcome uh, Skylar Baker-Jordan, um, who is a writer and journalist based in Tennessee. Um, Skylar is, um, happens to be a very enthusiastic supporter of uh, former South Bend mayor and now former presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg. So he's here today to talk to me about the very dramatic d- events of the past week and a little bit as, as well about how he's feeling as a, as a Pete supporter. So welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be with you. It's a delight to have you on, of course. Um, so it has been, as I said, a incredibly dramatic week. I think fair to say, Skylar, more dramatic than anyone was necessarily expecting. Yeah. I mean, it, it started out um, a lot more hectic and chaotic than I think any of us thought it would. Um, after South Carolina voted, Tom Steyer's... Um, announcement that he was dropping out I don't think really surprised anyone but Pete Buttigieg's um, su- announcement certainly surprised me yeah. uh, I thought all indications were that he would go into Super Tuesday as I thought Amy Klobuchar would um, so those two sort of falling like dominoes one right after yeah. another just sort of knocked the wind out of me um, <laughs> and it happened so quickly yeah. um, that I think it really changed the nature of the race, but it also um, left a lot of us reeling and not understanding exactly what was happening. 100%. Well, let's let's run through the order of events because there's a lot of news that's happened. So as you say, um, so the last time I was speaking to my listeners, hello listeners, <laughs> was uh, very shortly after I announced my own support um, for, for Elizabeth Warren, um, having wrestled with um, deciding between her and, and, and Pete Buttigieg. Um, that was on Sunday night. On Monday... Um, as you say, we sort of Sunday, Monday, we saw some dramatic departures from the race. In fact, uh, on Sunday night, just a, a couple of hours after I posted my last podcast, um, Pete announced his departure and then Amy did. That obviously, as you say, completely transformed um, what then happened the following day on Super Tuesday. Um, the Super Tuesday outcome was much more favorable for Joe Biden than it had been looking like it was going to be, even after his dramatic win in South Carolina the previous week. Um, and as a result, he overperformed all of his polls in, in in many, many states, almost every state. I think he overperformed his polls. Um, and Senator Sanders was left with wins in only a couple of mostly Western states. And of course, a, a win in California, which he was counting on, but not perhaps as dramatic a win there, even there as he was hoping for. Um, as a result, Biden is now the delegate, the plurality delegate leader. Um, and of course, we've got another round of votes coming up on on Tuesday. So a lot has happened. Shall we take them in order? Um, I think we can we can we can give Tom Steyer a moment of a moment of due. <laughs> um, he was one of only two billionaires in the race, didn't really manage to make his campaign take off anywhere. And I think was really, really banking on South Carolina, um, where he, he lived, moved to South Carolina, um, spent a lot of money and um, didn't get much for it, did he? <laughs> No, he didn't. And, um, you know, to to sort of 
take something that you just said that kind of struck me. Um, he was one of only two billionaires in the race. Um, <laughs> you know, that that was sort of uh, just a sort of commonplace statement should really be striking, I think, to all of us that there were yeah. two billionaires um, running for the Democratic nomination. Um, and I think that, you know, as a party and as a nation, we need to talk about uh, what that means going forward well, for well technically he's one of three billionaires running for the running for the presidency isn't he because the president is a billionaire well Alleg- the president Alleg- says he's a billionaire <laughs> Alleg- oh. <laughs> I, I, last i checked if i recall now don't quote me on this i think forbes magazine disagreed with him but um but yeah i mean look I, we, we've got three billionaires who ran for president this year um one is the sitting president but the, the problem of money and politics um, and the fact that <laughs> there were, you know, two billionaires sitting on that stage who, uh, Tom Steyer did the groundwork, but Mike Bloomberg, you know, yeah. sort of tried, I think, I think tried to buy his way into the race, but you know, that's a conversation I think the party needs to have ongoing. As for Tom Steyer, I think he deserves a lot of credit. He's done a lot over the last few years. Um, to really counter Donald Trump. He had those ads that were going as far back as 2017, if I recall. Um, And he seems like just a decent guy. And I hope that he will continue to be a player in Democratic politics going forward. I don't know what role that is, but I think you got to give Tom Steyer his due. He seems like a really nice guy. I think he was genuine. I think his motives were as altruistic as any candidate's motives are. And, um, I mean, I totally agree with that. I, the, and, and it brings to home a point that I've made a number of times before, which is that the problem of money in politics is not about good or bad people. If good people try to buy their way into power, it's bad. If bad people try to buy their way into power, it's, it's the, it's the conflation of money with power because it means that the people that it means that the, the, the people with money are the ones who have all the power and that there's no way of breaking the cycle of that being true. Um, and it makes bad exactly. policies and it makes bad, it makes, it's bad for the country. It's bad for democracy. It causes people to lose faith in democracy. It causes people with wealth to have an overinflated sense of their own righteousness and importance. It's just fundamentally bad for the country, even if it is done by good people for good reasons. Um, but this is the system we are in now, so we have to win within it to fix it, which is the, the chicken egg conundrum that we keep getting stuck in. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that's true. And I, I don't think it's a chicken and egg conundrum necessarily because in order to change the system, you have to win power. And to yep. win power, you have to play within the system as it is. So, uh, you know, it, it makes sense to have, um, you know, I was listening to Elizabeth Warren on Maddow last night talk about this very issue um, and how she tried to get everyone to pledge not to take money from super PACs. They didn't. Um But she was very, very pragmatic about it. You know, she's like, look, this is a system we're in. This was a Democratic primary. I thought we could do things differently. I knew in a general we wouldn't be able to. But this is the system we're in. But we've got to change the system. And I thought that she was right about that. You know, it's pragmatic, but it's also optimistic. Well, that sounds very Elizabeth Warren. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Tom Steyer was gone, and um, good luck to you, Tom. Go go, go do good things with your money, which I'm sure he will. Um, And then the next person to leave the race was was Pete Pete Buttigieg. And obviously I know that that caused a lot of feelings for a lot of people, including yourself. 
do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of what caused you to support Pete in the first place and, and how you felt at the end of his campaign? My support for Pete Buttigieg um, actually goes back to before the primary even began. In 2017, I wrote a piece for The Independent um, lamenting the fact that uh, he was not selected um, as the next DNC chair. Um, it was him and Jamu Green, who was an activist with Rock the Vote, who both during that DNC race really struck me. Oh my gosh, I too loved Jimmy Green, can I just say? I was Isn't she wonderful? Really regretting that she didn't go further. Um, and we should all take another look at her because she's phenomenal. She is phenomenal. And I would love to see her have a future in democratic politics, um, in elected politics. Um, I don't know what her plans are, but I, I hope that she goes very far because she is very, very good. And... I loved that both of them were young, they were energetic, they seemed to understand what the party needed to do to move forward. Um, but, but nobody seemed to want to listen to them in 2017. And I found myself sort of back in that same place with Pete in 2019, 2020. Um, everyone sort of wanted to pat him on the head and you know say, you're great, your time will come. But they didn't really want to take him seriously. And by everybody, I don't necessarily mean voters, um, although that was definitely the case, I think, for some older voters. Um, not all. Um, he had a lot of support with older voters. But with the party establishment. Um, and I, I, I hate to use the word establishment because it's sort of gotten a bad connotation these days. Um, but there is a real issue in the Democratic Party about um, a lack of young talent coming up. I always go back to Nancy Pelosi, who has been leader of the House uh, Democrats since I was a junior in high school, and I'm 34 years old now. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> Which, again, old... like with the billionaire thing, it's not about good or bad people because she's, you know, she's done the job well, but there's a lot of good she... people out there, <laughs> you know. She has done the job well. And, you know, when, when with regards to Pelosi, one thing I'll say is when she won the 2018 midterms, and people wanted to replace her. I said, well, no, she just delivered us the house. She deserves yeah. to lead. I'm not going to sit here and say she doesn't. But my problem was even going back before that, like, when's your, when's your exit happening? Um, yeah. And so I want to see more young Democrats starting to take leadership roles within the party. And that was a big thing for Pete. But it was also his policies. I thought that they were incredibly progressive. Um, and people lose sight of that maybe because Bernie Sanders is running and Bernie Sanders is Dennis Kucinich on Red Bull. Um, <laughs> you know, um, harsh, but I see how you got there. But um, so, so people kind of, you know, in comparison to Bernie, you know, Pete doesn't look quite as progressive, but he was incredibly progressive. Medicare for all who want it is an incredibly progressive policy. Obama couldn't even get a public option through Congress in 2010. So the fact that we're talking about it now as a, a real workable policy is amazing, and it's progressive. And I thought it was practical. I thought it was practical. I thought it was pragmatic. And then, you know, I, I liked that he had turned South Bend around. I think his record there is exemplary. Um, I think it's been 
poorly portrayed in the media and among certain uh, by certain candidates. Um, <laughs> but I think that he's done a lot of good there. I, I thought that his Douglas plan for the African-American community uh, was from, you know, my perspective as a white American yeah. was very, very good. So there was a lot to like there. And then, of course, you know, the idea of voting for a gay president really appealed to me as a gay man. Um, You know, that was just a remarkable thought that had never crossed my mind before because it just seemed so unlikely. And so there was that about him that I liked. From that point of view, one thing that strikes me about Pete's candidacy that we can all take away with a lot of satisfaction from is that it didn't matter that much. And I mean that in the sense of it mattered profoundly that a gay man was running and was a leading contender for the presidency of the United States, but he did not lose because he was gay. He did not, um, he was not driven out of the public sphere. He competed on equal footing with every other candidate and actually outperformed anybody's expectations of what a South Bend mayor could do on the national stage against much more experienced candidates. And I just, there's a part of me that always thinks, I feel like for a young gay person watching that, it has to make them think that there's a place for them on that stage too. Well, it, I absolutely agree. Um, I, I think that, you know, it's an incredibly transformative moment in democratic politics. Um in a blog that I wrote after Pete dropped out, um, I compared it to Shirley Chisholm's run in 1972 um, and what that did for uh, people of color and for women running for president. Someone always has to go first, and and Pete did that. Um, and no one can take that away from him. Um, I, I wrote for The Independent a couple weeks ago that if he lost South Carolina, it wouldn't be because of homophobia. And I still stand by that. But I will say that there was a piece that came out afterwards in, I think it was NBC Think, uh, that, that sort of laid out a different perspective on that, which is that, you know, I argued that, oh, like 70% of voters, 75% of voters say that voting for a gay man isn't an issue for them. But the flip side of that is that 25% of voters say it is, or whatever mm-hmm. the number was. And so he was definitely sort of starting at a deficit in that regard, but he won Iowa. Um, So, you know, you can't say that homophobia cost him the election, Um, but I also don't want to say that there wasn't some homophobia at play. I don't think, well, obviously we can't say that, but I think think what I would say is that the incompetence of the Iowa Democratic Party probably hurt him more than direct homophobia. <laughs> yes, I agree with that. And I think that the party needs to assess Iowa's, uh, for, first of all, just Iowa needs to take a long, hard look in the mirror. And <laughs> I- Iowa needs to take a step back, actually. Well, and, and, you know, it, it really does. Um, the, the Democratic leadership in that state needs to assess everything that went wrong and decide, you know, really consider their future going forward and their positions going forward because that should never have happened. But I think the party, you know, the Iowa caucuses have long needed to not be first yeah. um, for a <laughs> myriad of reasons. Um, and I think that it's time that we all sort of accept that yeah. and find a race that is maybe 
more indicative of the country writ large and also, you know, can run a competent election. Yeah, 100 percent. And I should say, I, I quite I still quite like the idea of starting in perhaps a smaller state and allowing the kind of retail politics and allowing. I mean, I said in my Iowa episode, there's something lovely about the fact that there are a couple of states in this country where people can still interact with presidential candidates as if they were local. And ideally, I would want everyone to have that experience rather than take it away from some people. That's not possible. But there must be a way of. Um, at least maybe rotating which states go first, certainly picking more diverse states. You know, there are other ways of running this rather than just giving Iowa farmers veto power over the U.S. presidency every cycle. <laughs> yeah, and I actually like the idea of uh, the first state going being a caucus state as well, because I yeah. think caucuses, you know, th there's there's a magic to caucuses. You have to convince people to support your candidate. You, you know, it, it's a community sort of event. It's democracy in its purest form. And I like that that, that a caucus state has a role uh, even if it is an outsized role, in setting the tone of the primary going forward and really helping to vet the candidates and 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 uh, sort of have a say in who is a, who is going out of that state with momentum and and I think that's incredibly important because if you can't convince your neighbors to vote for someone, you know how are you going to how is that candidate going to convince the nation to vote for them in a general? So I think that. Having a caucus go first is incredibly important. Nevada seemed to work pretty well. So, <laughs> um, I mean. <laughs> Why not give Latino voters a chance to have a say? Sure. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, you know, it's it's a little bit more uh, indicative of the country at large, certainly more indicative of the Democratic Party base. Um, no state is ever going to be perfect. You could come up with pros and cons for any state going first. But it, it's something to consider. Anyway, so process points aside, um, unfortunately, Pete did come, bid, did, didn't win. He did step aside. You yeah. were obviously surprised that he left before Super Tuesday. What do you think was his rationale for stepping out at that point? Uh, he says that he didn't see a path forward. He looked at the numbers. He looked at, you know, a, a host of factors um, and that he thought that the that the jig was up um it sounds like you don't really agree <laughs> no i don't i disagree with him um I, I i think that he should have stuck through super tuesday i think that the results might have shown him gaining some momentum um it was always a long shot candidacy i'm not gonna sit here and say with certainty that he would have become the nominee nobody knows who would have become the nominee um I think that he he genuinely saw Bernie Sanders as uh, the weaker of the two candidates um, in a general election, the two being Sanders or Biden. Yeah. And so he wanted to sort of coalesce the center ground. I, I think that that's probably accurate and fair to say. I, I don't think that biden is an electable candidate either so yeah. i don't i don't know that it does much good um but it certainly it certainly worked it certainly worked biden yeah. wouldn't have had the success he had on super tuesday if it wasn't for pete Buttigieg and amy klobuchar yeah i mean there was a there was a massive groundswell of what you could call establishment 
support endorsement coming out um, immediately before Super Tuesday. Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, also Beto O'Rourke came out um, yeah. and endorsed on the same day. Um, Harry Reid, the the former Senate Majority Leader um, uh, from Nevada, he came out and endorsed on that day. Um, it felt like after everybody holding back until the first four states had voted, it felt like it was a, a moment of the party signaling to voters that this was their preferred candidate and the voters. I mean, there's an old political science theory that ultimately in a, in a primary model, the party decides, i.e. that the party is the one. It, like, Not that there's some sort of smoke-filled rooms. There used to be smoke-filled rooms, but this model is more by sending signals of who they consider to be electable, the party leadership influences their voters in the direction that they prefer. And that feels exactly like what happened this week. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that's exactly what happened this week. And I think that it would have happened sooner if Joe Biden had been stronger in Iowa, New Hampshire or Nevada. Possibly a lot sooner. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, if his poll numbers had been consistently high, this would have happened, you know, last year. Yeah. Um, you know, it was never a secret that Joe Biden was who the the. I call them our elders, the Democratic elders wanted. Um, but I you know, felt like they were deliberately holding back to give space in case another compelling candidate emerged. Um, I think a lot of people were going, well, let's give Pete a chance. Let's see if Klobuchar can do something interesting. Let's see what Warren has to say. Yes, I think that probably there were a lot of people in the establishment who always wanted Biden. But I also think they were leaving, leaving room for the possibility that somebody else could win a, a groundswell of support, which they would have fallen behind. That could be true. I don't think Pete was ever one of the folks they had in mind. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I. I honestly think that the the party elders just did not like this uppity gay man from the Midwest coming in and, you know, at 38 years old, daring to run for president. Yeah. Um, but I there, think that I have there. I, sorry, go ahead. What was that? Well, I just I was curious because I have heard a lot of people saying about the staffers of the different campaigns that the staffers of other campaigns don't like Pete. And and that it, like on a more personal level that as you say that they have this real sense of how dare he, um, and I'm just curious if you've ever encountered some of that as a supporter. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I I definitely have you know had my fair share of comments directed at me towards you know uh, who does he think he is? He has such a he he he's so thirsty for power that he dares run for president when he was the the mayor of a quote unquote small town which you know South Bend is not a small town um by the standards of most Americans. I mean certainly if you're living in New York it, it looks pretty tiny but um you know, yeah. In fact, I've got <laughs> a, a conversation with a, a, a Bernie Sanders supporter um, in my mentions, right, or in my <laughs> direct messages right now, where I, you know, she asked if she could take it private so that she could avoid a pile on, which I respect. Um, but she's basically saying the same thing, um, and, and it's pretty indicative of what a lot of people feel. I mean, I think it was Amy Klobuchar said, you know, and, and I think this might be a fair statement, um, that a woman in Pete's shoes would never have uh, gotten as far as he did. And that's fair, 
But I think if you dig beneath the surface, the surface of that, there's also an implication that he shouldn't have gotten as far yeah. as he has. And that really bothered me because he, for many of us, he was the candidate we wanted to see as president. Yeah. And I think that his qualification, you know, we elected Obama four years out of the state legislature, not even four years. Um, and we seem to forget that. Um, yeah. If we really think four years in the Senate makes that big of a difference, um, you know, I think we need to sort of reassess. <laughs> <laughs> our criteria, because I don't see it as making that big of a difference from where Pete was. Um, and, you know, the current occupant of the White House won with no elected experience at all. Now, I'm saying I'm not saying Donald Trump is the standard that we should try and be meeting. No, we, we can try and exceed better. that. But, you know, for American voters, I think the definition of what is qualified to be president, what are these qualifications, has changed. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's it's not what it was. And I, we'll see I, going forward if I'm right. But I think I think that's true. I think you're right. People are looking at different things from candidates than they were. Um, Amy Klobuchar also stepped down, as you point out. Um, you know, she was one of only two women left, left in the race. Um, no minorities were left in the race. So a lot of the things that people were saying early on about how the the spread of candidates we had at first looked very much like the party and like the country um, that it doesn't now. <laughs> it's, it's fair to say we've got well, two septuagenarian white guys. Um, and you have Tulsi Gabbard, who is a woman of color. And, Tulsi um, and so while she's, you know, it would be the biggest upset in American political history if Tulsi <laughs> Gabbard won the nomination. Um, I, but I, she is sticking it out to be fair. She is sticking it out. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't want to erase her. Um, I don't want to vote for her, but <laughs> <laughs> but I don't want to erase her. Um, but yeah, Klobuchar dropped out as well and left us with two crotchety old white men. Yeah, well, I mean, so Klobuchar dropped out. She immediately endorsed Biden. Pete waited a day or two. Then Super Tuesday happened. Um, very dramatic. And then a day or two, so a day went by, a couple days went by. Um, and eventually Elizabeth Warren also decided to suspend her campaign. Um, uh, so Mike Bloomberg also dropped out. Let's talk about actually, let's talk about Mike Bloomberg. Oh, let's talk about Mike Bloomberg. Yeah, I have, I have oh, Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> uh, what can one say? <laughs> um, we've already talked about billionaires in general. Um, we've talked about Tom Steyer being possibly a good guy, um, but, but a part of the problem in terms of his wealth, I think Bloomberg is more than just a problem for more than just his wealth. I think he's also a problem for his policies and for his actions as mayor of New York. So whilst I'm very glad that he had the grace to step aside before, you know, he messed up the race completely. And whilst I'm very glad that he has said that he would like to continue to spend his money on electing Democrats. Great. Um, considering this is the crappy system that we operate in. Um, I still think that Mike Bloomberg is not in any way representative of the Democratic Party that I believe in. I think Mike Bloomberg, I'm going to give him some credit for, for getting out because I didn't think he would. Um, I thought his ego would prevent him from uh, doing, quote unquote, the right thing. 
Um, so I give him credit there. He has also been um, incredibly generous and incredibly instrumental in fighting for common sense gun laws in this country. Yes. And I think that he deserves credit for that. And on climate um, change. And what was that? And he's also been on, you know, been very good um, in progressing, p- pushing for climate change. Yes. Uh, you know, for against yeah. climate change, I should say. He's on the right side <laughs> yeah. of climate change. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, credit where it's due. Um, but I overall agree with you. I think Bloomberg um, is he would make a very good moderate Republican nominee. Yes. Yes. Um, He's not a Democrat. And, um, you know, if he wants to support Democrats, I'm all for it. Give us your money. Um, But there were a lot of obstacles to me supporting Mike Bloomberg, even in a general election. Um, It really would have felt... Like, you know, every election to a degree is the lesser of two evils because you never agree 100 percent with a candidate unless you are the candidate. It doesn't matter who it is. You're always going to find finer points of policy you disagree on. That's normal. Uh, But Mike Bloomberg would have really felt like his nomination would have almost to me felt like the death knell of democracy and that we are – almost completing our transition into oligarchy and so i'm very i'm very i'm very glad (laughs) that you dodged a bullet there (laughs) yes i'm very glad that you know voters showed that you cannot buy an election and and that sounds incendiary in a way but it really felt to me that that's what mike bloomberg was trying to do he was trying to bypass the process um you know skipping the first what three or four states Um, And going straight to Super Tuesday, trying to convince voters with TV ads. Yeah. Um, I totally agree. It didn't work. It didn't work. And And thank God it didn't. And I would also add to all the things that you said that Mike Bloomberg's, I believe, profoundly mistaken contention that he would be an electable candidate um, is also something that that's so fundamentally wrong i feel like mike bloomberg he his theory of the case was that he could bring along moderate republicans i don't think that's true i think partisan alignment is so deeply embedded in the country that everybody who's currently a republican is going to vote for donald trump in you know in november the question is are we going to get our voters out and are we going to get our voters to the poll because our coalition can overwhelm the republican coalition if we all 100% vote and i think Mike Bloomberg would have really threatened our ability to deliver the votes from all of the communities that Democrats represent. Um, And I think he would have put off a lot of people. He would have made a lot of people feel like, why bother voting? Not, you know, he, 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 he is, he is not a member of our party in good standing and he has not stood with our party. Um, And I think that that would have really hurt us in terms of turnout, which ultimately probably matters more than any anything else. So yeah, so Mike, Mike, goodbye. And then, um, and then Elizabeth, and and he vigorously endorsed Joe Biden. So now you've got the races congealing into 
what feels like it's obviously as you say two candidates clearly representing two two lanes within the party is how it's always talked about a more moderate and a more um leftist lane all of the moderates quote unquote and i don't i think it's debatable whether all of these people really fall into that lane because i agree with you i think Buttigieg is not quite fits into that description but let's say he did all of the non-Bernie Sanders candidates have dropped out um, or non-leftist candidates have now dropped out and are endorsing Joe Biden very clearly. Elizabeth Warren, um, who I supported, steps aside. She has not as of yet stated that she's going to endorse anyone. Um, she's just stepped aside very graciously and said, you know, it's not her time. Um why couldn't Elizabeth Warren, and I, I'm I'm a little biased here because I think she is one of the smartest people in public life and one of the most capable and one of the best communicators of political ideas, along with Mayor Buttigieg, I have to say. She is one of the best people at explaining complicated ideas to American voters in ways that even a 10-year-old child can understand, um, and yet also being kind of really thoughtful about solutions. And I just kind of, there's a part of me that's like, my heart is hurt because there's a part of me that's thinking, if not her, then who, right? Like, if we can't get behind a woman candidate who looks like this, I don't know who we are going to get behind. Well, we got behind Hillary Clinton. Um, so I think that, you know, there that's something that's worth keeping in mind is that democratic voters have indicated that they will nominate a woman for president and americans have indicated they will vote for a woman for president hillary clinton won the popular vote um by what was it three million votes yeah um and so all of this talk about america not being ready or democrats not being ready um i i think we have to keep in mind who our nominee was and if we didn't have an electoral college, who our president would be right now. Um, and so I take a little bit of solace in that. I realize American women probably don't, and I can completely understand why, because it's more salt in the wound than anything, I would imagine. But um, I think that that's important. That being said, obviously sexism plays a role in yeah. the campaign. And um, you have somebody who is incredibly competent, incredibly articulate, incredibly detail-oriented, um, running to be president, and she just can't seem to break through. Um, and I think that's for a couple reasons. One is um, Bernie Sanders sort of sucks up the oxygen of the left. And, you know... There's just no – you can't compete with him. No one could, man or woman. I don't think anyone could. He is the rock star of that wing of the party right now and will be until he loses a general election. Um, that's that's not going to change. So she tried to run as a more – you know pragmatic choice as maybe a little bit more moderate but i don't think moderate voters were buying that you know they had their candidates uh over there that they were yeah biden and klobuchar and Buttigieg even yeah um and then i think that she just had some terrible messaging at times you know she had 
um, I think she had some very bad advisors. Uh, when she realized she couldn't out Bernie Bernie, she switched to social issues. But this campaign, this election, I don't think will necessarily be decided by the traditional sort of social issues that the Democrats have run on for the last 30 or 40 years. It's not going to be decided by LGBT rights. We can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I don't think that's even at the forefront of most LGBT Americans' uh, minds right now. What they're thinking about is kids in cages. Um, What they're thinking about is our global standing. What they're thinking about is income inequality. Um, But I think, you know, for me, it was on economic policy that I have always found Elizabeth Warren most compelling. And I think she's a, I I think you're absolutely right about that Bernie Sanders kind of owns the the left of the party for the time being. Um, But there is always a part of me that kind of goes, but he shouldn't because she's she's smarter about it. Like she, I, I've always he absolutely like, shouldn't, right? Like Elizabeth Warren is the one, and I guess one of the reasons I re- I react this way is because she is the one who convinced me th- of the problem that we have in economic inequality in America. Like she's been a big part of my intellectual journey, and I'm talking about way before she was a politician. As a researcher, as an academic, I followed her writings on bankruptcy reform. I mean, I've been following Elizabeth Warren's career for a long time, just as somebody who's interested in public policy. I've been following her, and she's made such a good case for why capitalism needs a radical restructure, and she built it from the from the ground up from like the data right and she talked and she worked and she act she was an activist and so i've always found her economic case so compelling that i it just baffles me a little bit that bernie sanders waves his hands in the air and and people find him somehow more convincing i just i don't see it but that's me (laughs) well i'm gonna say two things to that one of them is about the sexism inherent in that which is that this is something that we see in boardrooms and in offices and um, in elections, yes, but in all walks of life in America, in the UK, which is that a competent woman comes along with detailed plans, and yet somehow the shouty guy ends up the choice. They get the job. They get the promotion. Um, and so that double standard exists um, within society. Um, and, you know, that's I don't have an answer as to how we fix that. Um, I wish I did. Um, All I can say is what I usually say, which is men need to do better and be better and talk to one another and call out the sexist double standards of other men. Um, I think the onus is on us as much as it is on, you know, more than it is on women, really, because this is a system that men created. Um, (laughs) But, you know, unfortunately, that double standard does exist. What I'll say from my experiences on the left, um, particularly having lived through, what is it, four or five years, almost, you know, four and a half years of Jeremy Corbyn and having supported Jeremy Corbyn in 2015 in the leadership race, um, the left isn't necessarily concerned with uh, plans and thoughtfulness. <laughs> it it, it, it <laughs> res- the left responds to emotion. 
Yeah. And Bernie Sanders elicits that emotion. Um, the left has never been extremely detail oriented. Um, and in fact, I think the left in many ways is deeply suspect of detail because everything is black and white, morally good or morally bad. There should be no nuance. There should be no discussion. You yeah. just do it. Um, and, you know, I, I, that was my experience with the Corbinistas <laughs> and what eventually <laughs> turned me off to Jeremy Corbin. And I, I wrote about this actually not that long ago. Um, I wrote a column for The Independent saying, look, I see Bernie Sanders making all the same mistakes Jeremy Corbin made. And yeah. one of that is the way that his supporters act in general, but specifically the way they treat women. And I saw a lot of the way that Elizabeth Warren was treated by the hard left of the Democratic Party, which the irony of which is they would probably be at best the soft left, Sadiq Khan in the UK. Yeah. Um, some of them are just flat out Blairites. But <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I look at them and I'm like, oh, you, you're so precious. You think you're so radical. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> yeah. Let me introduce you to a real socialist. <laughs> like, we have actual Trotskyists in my CLP, so, you know, nothing. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, you, you think that you're so bold. Um, but <laughs> that's cute. Sit down. Um, please meet my friend Diane Abbott. Uh, <laughs> so, but, but I, the resonance yeah. between, I mean, this is something, I've done a lot of media this week here in the UK. I mean, I've been on, you know, everything from, you know, BBC Radio to Sky to whatever. And they all have the same thing. They're all saying to me, is Bernie Sanders the, the Corbyn of, and I always say, well, you know, it's a different country and different political traditions. And, you know, they're, they're two very different men, but yeah. <laughs> right. Like it, yeah. it obviously there are differences and the differences are important, but there are also similarities and the similarities are striking um, that both of them are feeding, like neither of them are good at building on their baseline. The, the Corbyn and, and Sanders both, I think, admirably changed the politics of what is possible and then failed to take the next step of pulling people from the fringes of their, like, who are at the margins of what might, what their views might be pulling them in. It's, they didn't do the persuasion piece. They just did the intensification piece. Exactly. And... Uh Part of that is that the hard left in both countries um, – well, let me backtrack a little. I, I agree with you. There are important differences. Um, but one of the things that I, I, I've had many Bernie Sanders supporters since that piece came out, and I, I re-up that piece probably every day or two um, because I think it's so important that you know there is, there is a roadmap of what not to do that the Sanders campaign can follow if only they would look at it. Um, but they won't. And a lot of Sanders supporters have said to me, well, this is a different country. You can't compare the two. Yeah. Well, that's true. There are, there are differences, but there are enough similarities that comparative politics is helpful, not just between the U.S. and the U.K., but you can look at Australia. You can look at, um, you know, most of Europe right now where there's an insurgent far right. This is a global trend. You know, Brazil, the Philippines, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so th these countries are different, but there are some similarities that are worth pointing out, as you said. And do you know what? Sometimes the movements aren't different. I'll tell you one interesting fact. Momentum 
sent so momentum for my listeners benefit is the um, Corbyn aligned uh, group um, of labor members here in the UK pushing for Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn style politics. They sent an email <clears throat> to their supporters saying, if you are also an American citizen, please come out and vote for Bernie Sanders in the Democrats broad global primary, um, which I thought was extraordinary. You know, well, yeah. I mean, it, it's not at all surprising to me because, well, first of all, it's not surprising because the left is built on international solidarity. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's a fairly common. But I mean, if you look at some of the British writers that are, you know, two come to mind automatically, one of which is, was on TV the other day as a Bernie Sanders surrogate, Mehdi Hassan, you know, has yeah. gone full Sander, you know, I, I don't like Bernie bro I, for a number of reasons, but I call it the Bernie brigade, feels a little bit more inclusive, but he's, you know, one of the officers in the Bernie Brigade now. Um, Abby Wilkinson is another one who Abby, I really like. Um, she's lovely. She's, she, she's wonderful. Um, but she is and another. She's, you know, to be fair, one of the socialists who. Yeah. Uh, is, 100%. So, I mean, it, it's not surprising at all. And, you know, the, the same is true, though, I think, of maybe not necessarily at a grassroots level like momentum is, but I mean, Right, we Steve Bannon went over to the UK and helped, and you know, with the conservatives and Americans have been meddling in <laughs> British elections yep. for a very long time. So, <laughs> guilty as charged. Came over so, and worked with worked with Trump. So, yeah. So, so I mean, you know, this has been so, happening a long time. So you know, there it is. But one thing I do want to say about the left and, and details and policies and implementation and not really having a plan is. I think it's because the left is much more comfortable in opposition. Yes. Um, it's sort of reason for being is to shout and scream and protest and, um, you know, point out inequalities when it comes time to actually deliver. I mean, look, implementing a socialist agenda is hard. It's never going to be easy. Dismantling an entire system, an economic system is hard. And there's going to be hurdles and there's going to be road bumps. And I think that terrifies a lot of people on the left in both the UK and the US if they're being honest with themselves. Yeah. They think, you know, um, I, I mean, I don't know. That's just my right. my feeling. I think that's right. So listen, uh, we've talked about a lot of things. <laughs> you obviously work with supporter. He's out of the race. We're left with these two choices. Have you decided how you're going to vote, how you who you're going to support now, how you would vote if you had a vote now? I lived in Tennessee. Pete got out on Sunday. We voted on Tuesday. I didn't vote. Right. I don't care. You don't have a candidate. No, I think Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are both. um, I wrote a piece yesterday that said Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are both terrible candidates. They don't have to be. Here's what they should do. Um, You know, I, I, I think. What would I they don't have know. to do in your vote? I mean, it's too late in the primary now, and I just want to say whoever is the nominee. I mean, we could nominate my cat who is sitting right next to me, and I will vote for her over Donald Trump. I mean, so I, mean, I think no your cat would be great. Your cat I mean, would do way less harm. <laughs> it, it's true. She would. Um, <laughs> but she just wants cuddles. Um <laughs> But, um, you know, for for Joe Biden, 
a one-term pledge would go a long way. Um, and some people around him have already, uh, Politico had a piece, I think at the end of last year, have already been whispering that, you know, he would only serve one term. You got to think he's going to be, what, 82 when he runs for re-election? So, yeah. I mean, um, and, I mean, Sanders has the same problem, of course. Sanders does. Um, you'll never get a one-term pledge out of Bernie Sanders. But um, for Joe Biden, you might. And then name an exciting, young, progressive running mate. You know, and then build a cabinet that is and promise to build a cabinet that is full of young Democratic talent and then sort of be that transition figure from the old guard to the new, you know, elevate the, the, the rising stars of the Democratic Party and, and, and give them a fighting chance to actually, you know, take us into the next decade and into the decades on. If Joe Biden, Joe Biden's running mate is going to be really, really important um, because he's just not an exciting candidate. So yep. he needs that sort of game change moment that Sarah Palin was meant to bring to John McCain's campaign. Now, the the, the catch of that is, of course, that he needs to pick someone who isn't dumb as a box of rocks. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he needs that. It's going to be incredibly important As for Sanders. Um, Dude, tone down the rhetoric. Get a hold of your supporters. I'm sorry. I am not trying to vote for the Donald Trump at the left. And by that, I mean whose supporters toxify yeah. public discourse and our political culture. Right now, that is a massive stumbling block to me. I could not in good conscience vote for Bernie Sanders um, for the nomination. I will vote against Trump, but if he is the nominee and this continues, I won't doorstep for him. Yeah. I will focus on down ballot races, but I, I will not donate doorstep phone bank, nothing. I'll vote because I'm not a fascist, but, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I can't endorse it. Okay. Listen, Skylar, we need to sign off in a couple minutes cause I have to go collect my daughter from school. Ah. <laughs> but before we do that, um, should we play the gut check game really quickly? Yeah. So for my listeners um, who don't know, I have in front of me my trusty Red Sox baseball cap into which I have placed some quotes and sayings heard around the campaign trail. This week, it's mostly speeches from candidates because um, it was a big week for speechifying. Um, I'll read them out and we'll just give a quick, you know, just a couple words of how do we feel about these things. Here's Amy Klobuchar um, saying... He can bring our country together. This is about Joe Biden. He can bring our country together and build that coalition of filed up, fired up Democratic base as well as independents and moderate Republicans. We do not in our party want to just eke out a victory. We want to win big. Yeah, the only thing <laughs> Joe Biden has ever fired up is the engine of an old car. Um, uh, he he's just yeah he's he's not he's not Obama as much yeah. as he wishes he were. Yeah. My my gut reaction was, I do want to win big. That's why I'm not so sure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, here's, uh, speaking of what we were just talking about, here's David Sirota, a Sanders, St Sanders campaign staffer, um, who posted on Twitter saying, I'm not moving to D.C. no matter what, so I'll speak a truth that's not allowed to be said. Joe Biden is a full employment program for the Beltway Democratic establishment. He makes sure that for them, nothing would fundamentally change. That's a huge part of why they support him. I mean... 
I, I don't necessarily disagree that Joe Biden isn't a change agent, but, you know, girl, good night. You're supporting Bernie Sanders. Like, <laughs> no, nothing. I mean, Bernie Sanders, how is he going to change things? N- not tell me what he wants to change, but tell me how he's going to do it. How's he going to get those plans through Congress? Yep. It's the how yeah. part. It's the how part. Like, one of the things I've liked about Buttigieg and, and Warren both is they talk a lot about structural political reform that you know the process itself yes. needs work and yes that's yes. really important and there's no point having a perfect plan if you don't have a path to it absolutely 100 percent agree yeah and i think you know it, it, it's just i mean they just only have i mean that quote i read it and i'm like they've only got one they've only got one note it's an orchestra playing just one note. <laughs> well, and what does it even mean? I mean, you know, you're talking about beltway politics and nothing's going to change. You know, uh, Americans that don't respond to that. Yeah. You know, they want to hear what you're going to do for them, not what your opponent is going to do for some D.C. pundit or lobbyist or they want to hear what you're going to do for them. So. Yeah. Okay, one more quote, and then I need to sign off. Um, Here is a quote from the audience at Pete's speech when he was announcing his suspension of campaign, chanting, 2024, 2024, 2024. 2024, 2024. You know, I mean, I'll caveat that with, I'm always a little nervous when people say 2024 because if we have a democratic president, yeah. ideally they would be gearing up for their second term, you know, to run for reelection. And, um, you know, I would like it if both of them would make one term pledges, but I just want to say that I would much rather have to vote again in 2024 for Biden or Sanders than to yeah. have to live through four more years of Donald Trump. So. <laughs> totally agree. I mean, my reaction to that was like, in a perfect world, I would be voting to reelect whoever is the Democratic president. I, and then my secondary reaction is, but gosh, both of the people we are we are nominating or potentially nominating are so old, old that they may not be physically capable of running again. And then I feel sad. So my well, gut's like really ambivalent about that. I said something on Twitter the other day that I felt kind of terrible about, but is true, and I think that we need to sort of acknowledge it. Which is, somebody said. You know, I'm so sad that it'll be, you know, 2024 at the very earliest that we'll have a woman president. And I said, well, if one of these men picks their a, a woman as their running mate, considering their advanced age and health, it might be sooner. I genuinely think that Joe Biden has that in mind. I mean, he started saying, even at the point of announcing that he wanted to appoint, ideally, a young African-American female vice president. And I think he had in mind that he might not even make it out of full term. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's morbid. And and I I wish both of them long and happy lives. I, I, you know, but it's something that voters need to think about. And it's why whoever the nominee is, the VP pick is going to be vital, more important than it has been maybe ever, uh, at least in my lifetime. So. Totally agree. Listen, I've got to go get my daughter from school, but I've so enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. And we will, we will check in again soon. No doubt. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. And that's it. 
If you are a U.S. voter listening to the sound of my voice, make sure that you do register to vote and cast your ballot in your state primary um, and in the general election wherever you are. If you're an American abroad, you can still vote in the Democrats Abroad Global Primary. Um, There is, in fact, a second voting opportunity right here in London in a physical voting location, which is taking place tomorrow. You can also, of course, vote online and by postal ballot. Go to democratsabroad.org for more information. If you're an American back home, go to vote.org and they will sort you out with whatever you need to register and request your ballot. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please, please, I beg you, do rate and review the podcast. Um, I don't take any money for doing this. It's just a labor of love. So it helps me a lot if I know that I'm getting some love and appreciation back at me. So again, in whatever podcast app you're using, especially in the Apple app, um, please go ahead and rate and review and share the podcast if you can. If you've found anything valuable out of it, please share. And finally, I should say that although um, I mention a lot of organizations and and people on this podcast, um, uh, it is not affiliated with any organization or entity. It is just me here. And I wish you a very happy week. Thank you.